Welcome to the Jerry Bovino Show. And now, here's Jerry. Jerry Bovino, we're back with the Rock and Roll Brothers, Jeff Levin, and Bachelor Number Two over here, Robbie <laughs> Levin, who's a repeat offender on the Jerry Bovino show. I was going to call the show uh, Rockstar Brothers, but you guys rejected that. You don't feel like rock stars. What's the story? Uh, we were rock stars for 15 minutes. <laughs> you had a, you you guys had a band uh, called People back mm-hmm. in the 60s. Right. Tell the story, Jeff. We grew up in the Bay Area, so we grew up with people like Jerry Garcia, who I you played knew with. Jerry Garcia. I played with Jerry Garcia when we were all young. We were doing folk music, and there was a tight knit group, and they came to San Jose because there was a little club called the Off Stage, and tons of great musicians went there. David Crosby was there, um, Big Brother was there from Janis Joplin. And we were there, but we were young, so we were the kids, and they, they tolerated us. When everything changed, we changed too. Literally, the Beatles and Dylan plugged in. And so all the folk music went away instantly, and we all started bands. But you started out as folk music. Yes. And, and Robbie, you evolved, and Robbie... Bluegrass. Robbie, bluegrass. Yeah, bluegrass. Robbie was playing mandolin, I was playing guitar, and... I played bass for Jerry Garcia. Because wow. well, nobody played bass, so I bought one because everybody else was better than me on guitar. <laughs> so, so and, and Robbie was young, and he was like, how old were you? 14. And he would tag along, and so he would take pictures of us now, playing. Now, every kid, you're a couple of Jewish kids from San Jose, right? True. Grew up. I want to show you a picture. If this isn't... An anachronistic <laughs> throwback to another era. Here are Jeff and Robbie. How old would you say you were here, Robbie? It, your, your hand's over the 57. That's the year it was taken. I, I was eight. I was eight, and he was almost 12. That's unbelievable. But it was another time, you know. Ricky Nelson was on TV. Oh, yeah, we the, watched those shows. Remember, I mean, it was so wholesome. And then the world changed in the 60s. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Because you're... You grew up through that period, Robbie, where it was like a wholesome Ozzie and Harriet America that turned into the summer of love in '67. What happened? Uh, you know, I think I think it was a, it was a combination of the the introduction of drugs through the Beatles and through the English groups, and then through the acid rock movement, which followed almost immediately. You know, the the Bay Area groups, um, the Grateful Dead was synonymous with you know acid trips. And, uh, and we played with them a lot. We did a lot of concerts with them. Uh, and at the same time, there was the, the, the Vietnam War was going on, and there was a whole geopolitical uh, change going on in the country. At the same time, there was a cultural change going on. And there was the make love, not war, peace. Uh, you know, we were around Haight-Ashbury, and everybody's getting stoned, and everybody's making love. And you know, we, we went to the Fillmore Auditorium the night it opened, the wow. first night it opened. And we saw the light show, which n- nobody had done before. And everybody's tripping out on, you know, these ridiculous, corny light shows that were, but at the time they were groundbreaking. And, and I think that's what, what introduced the whole change to the country. 
It was revolutionary. You know what's interesting to me, as someone who grew up in the same era, when I was in college, okay, it was a very wholesome, clean-cut time. Mm -hmm. And then, right at this moment in history, okay, when you guys were evolving into rock, my two best friends in college went to San Francisco, became deadheads. Mm. I mean, they went to 382 dead concerts. I mean, and they remember every one or what they don't remember. Yeah. And I went off to medical school. We had completely different uh, life experiences that changed us forever. We're still friends, but we're different. So talk about what was your relationship with your brother like during this period? Well, I tolerated him. You're the older brother. Yeah. We can tell that because you have gray hair. <laughs> yeah. We're only two and a half years. Separate. Three years and seven months. Yeah, okay. He's He is older. He's forgetting things. You know, he's slowly forgetting <laughs> there things. There you go. But you've also had through your lifetimes, and I want to talk about, to me, uh, there are some poignant stories here about the tempestuous relationship you've had as brothers. Well, growing up, I never understood why I couldn't stand him but I used to beat up on him. And I used to, he was smaller than me for quite a while. And he's still a little skinny kid. Well, I would, he's a black belt in karate too. <laughs> I know that, I know so that. So I, I don't think I would be. Um, one day my dad, after pounding my brother and he was crying and everything and no real reason other than he probably aggravated me. My dad came over to me and he, without warning, he slugged me as hard as he could in my arm. And he said, how does that feel? And that was it. That's the last time I ever touched my brother. That's interesting, because my father, who was like the youngest of five brothers or something, was always getting beaten up. And one day when he got to be 14 or 15, uh -huh. he lifted weights and he, and he punched his brother as hard as he could in his stomach, the older brother who had right. beat up, and he never touched him again. And so there's a good lesson. No, it was yeah. a good lesson for me. Okay, and, so. But we were, we never quite got along, and um, we always worked together, though. He, he, we were in a bluegrass band together called the Piney Creek Ramblers, and then we went from that into People, the rock group, and he was a founding member. It was really. Who you. was the, You were the founding member? No, we was, were. It was, it, was my, it, was, two it, was, it was the two of us plus a really close friend of mine who was in grammar school with me, who was another musician. That's Albert Rabisi, who's in those, <coughs> those photos, Giovanni Rabisi's dad. And, and yeah, the three of us kind of put, put it together, I'd say. So, okay, so let's, let's show, the, let's show our viewers a picture of people. Well, okay. That's, that's not the... Is this people here? Yeah, that's, that's a is, later that's people. A, okay, let's give you the early people. There that you go. One. Okay, that's it. That's so it. this... Now, before I show the picture, growing up as a nerdy kid in Queens, I mean, to me, being a rock star was like an amazing thing because it, it symbolized sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Do rock musicians in that day, are you getting a lot of sex? Definitely. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, why is your experience different? I was very focused and shy. Basically. You were shy. Do I, some people become stars because they're shy and they, that's their avenue? I had a huge urge to express myself, and I felt San Jose was a cultural wasteland. 
completely. It probably was, hasn't changed much. Well, no, <laughs> yeah, it's now got tech in it, but it, then it was all orchards. And so I didn't have any reference to anything except what my parents gave us, which was musicals like My Fair Lady. Okay. And I would feel them. I'd feel yes. this music. I'd go to a movie and I'd feel it. And I fell in love with Debbie Reynolds and all of those things. And then when I was 16, my cousin's husband sat me down and played me Shalom Havarin, which is a Jewish folk song, one chord, and I was hooked. He showed me how to play it. My brother had a guitar. I didn't even have a guitar. And that was it. From that point on, I was dedicated to playing guitar. But did you run the band? You were the older brother. I, yeah, I, I had And the, did you look up to your brother at that point? Uh, or I, was, you know, he was a role model for me, no question about yeah. it. And, and I was shy, back to the question about the, oh, yeah, that's you know, right. the, the uh, girls' yeah. sex rock and roll. I was shy, as shy as he was, probably more, really? more he, inhibited. He was see, the but the cute guy. But see, the, the girls didn't seem to care that I was shy. So they, they girls loved you. You get up there with a the guitar, and drugs were an integral part of the experience in Not the 1960s. Not for us. Not no. so much. But we, we, smoked, we smoked pot, you know, recreationally, yeah. um, but we were, we were focused more but on the music. You were turned on. See, we got turned on before everybody else did. Yeah. Turned on by drugs? To drugs. Yes. Mainly marijuana. And we did it in the late, I did it in late 63 because I was. 63. In, yeah, I was in the folk scene. It didn't really become really huge till about 66. Well, let's show this picture. Talk a little bit yeah. about this picture. This is the early group People, which I should tell you had a, a, a huge hit, one hit wonder, would we yes. call it? Yeah. Okay. I love you. And I'm not using that as a pejorative. No, no, I've no, never no, had any hits. It is, it is okay. what it is. But that's Larry Norman, Gene Mason, me with the cello. I did Ruby Tuesday. We were doing Ruby Tuesday, which is uh, a Stone song that they use cello. Denny Fridkin, my brother, and Albert Ribisi. And uh, what was the what was the glue that held the band together? Was there because one of the things I want to talk. Let's hold this thought because this okay. is. I want to come back to this thought. What holds a band together and why do bands break up? The Beatles broke up. Simon and Garfunkel broke up. I want to talk about why bands break up and what are the stresses internally with all of the success revolving around you. Why, why, why do they break up? Because that's something that affects so many. I can tell you why. I all right, we're going to hold it for a second. Okay. First thing we're going to do is take a short break to recognize the underwriters who very generously support us here at Grassroots Television. Pitkin County, dry goods, terrific clothes, right over next to Paradise Bakery, Bishop Plumbing, Heating and Air Conditioning, and Silver Peak Apothecary. Get high, but responsibly. When we come back, we are going to hear why bands break up and what are the glue, the covalent bonds that keep them together. We're coming right back. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, serving Aspen and Vale for over 40 years. Shoe covers, name tags, IDs. Let Bishop worry about your heating, plumbing, and air conditioning issues so that you don't have to. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, 925-8610. Silver Peak Apothecary is the first cannabis retail store in the city of Aspen, offering a fine selection of bud, flower, and infused cannabis products, as well as accoutrements from glassware, oils, soaps, 
along with books, t-shirts, and educational material. Silver Peak Apothecary is located at 520 East Cooper Avenue in downtown Aspen and is open daily from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. For more information, visit us on the web at www.silverpeakapothecary.com or call 970-925-4372. Pitkin County Dry Goods opened its doors on July 4, 1969 as Aspen's source for 60s mod fashion. Joining the sophisticated with the informal, Pitkin County Dry Goods offers an eclectic mix of creative boutique designers and wearable fashion basics. Aspen's oldest clothing retailer, Pitkin County Dry Goods, continues to deliver renowned customer service and innovative style to a loyal local and international clientele. Pitkin County Dry Goods. You can reach them at 520 East Cooper Ave or give them a call at 970-925-1681. Jerry Bovino, we're back with the Rock and Roll Brothers, Jeff Levin, and bachelor number two, Robbie Levin, married to the beautiful Julie from Leaf People. Say hello to her in the Saturday market. And so you guys had a band, People. Who named it People? We did, I think. Trying to come up with a, you know, a play off of all the English rock Beatles. groups. You know. right. yeah, yeah. One word. We people. One word. Right. And... Here's a picture, a later picture of the, of the group, the, uh, the people, we'll call them. And you had a big hit single. So talk about that single. Uh, the name of it was I Love You, Ray. Mm-hmm. Always good. Um, who wrote it? How did it become a big hit? It was written by Chris White from The Zombies. Zombies. I remember the zombies. Yeah, we were we were big fans. They were really good musicians. Did they? Did you cover their song? We or? covered it. They had released it, and what? Uh, they released it, and nothing happened with it. I mean, it didn't go anywhere. But but uh, our our lead singer was in a music store, going through a bunch of forty fives. You know, the little ones. Found it, brought it back. We we uh, played it, and we covered it. And how did it become a hit, Robbie? What happened? We were, we were doing a gig. We were already signed with Capitol Records. We had already released our first single with Capitol Records. And did you it, have any before? You, you yeah, had yeah. some minor success, right? Yeah, I mean, well, we were recording. We were already signed we with Capitol. We released one single. Yeah, least. we released one single. And we were doing a live performance. There, some of their A&R people were there. We played it on stage. They'd never heard it before. They thought we were, it was an original. And they wanted us to record it. We and so we did. And you get the rights. How does it work? You buy the rights from once the it's recorded. No, once it's written, recorded, anyone has the right to record it. Anyone. And you, you just have to pay, pay royalties. Pay royalties. The, the royalties the are paid to the writer. Yeah. Okay. But we get the money for the record, for the actual recording. I see. So anybody. So if I wanted to record, any. You know, Madonna song or something. Oh yeah, I you could. could record it, sure. Because I'll it's even a pop- help you if you want. If you're there ready. There you go. I don't think I'm going to be very successful. <laughs> so you recorded, and what made it a hit? When you look at it, it's a simple song. Uh-huh. Was that good or bad to be simple? It was very unusual. It, it was u- unique in the way it was put together. It wasn't a normal kind of typical hit of that time period. We had our Capital A and R guys and record promotion people were rabid about that they wanted to make it a hit. 
And so it was the Capitol people in there. They pushed it. They yeah, were tenacious. They One were guy got on a, on a telephone pole and sat, and sat on a pole until a radio station would, would play, play the song. And another guy stood on his head until they played These the song. These are A&R guys with Capitol Records. But and, I told and, Robbie, I was listening to Sirius a couple months ago, uh -huh. and, and it came on, you know, and really? people, you know, and here it is, I love you. And do you like the song? You know, some singers who record songs that become phenomenally successful mm. hate the song. No, do you like the song? We like the song. It was unique. It had a really cool musical solo that the keyboard player played, and and it had harmony. It, it, it gave both singers a chance to sing, which was great, because we had two singers, and they each have a real different voice. So, yeah, we like this. I You're like a singer-songwriter, Jeff. Is Songwriter. Well, I'm, I'm a songwriter a and a composer. Yeah, I'm not but a great singer. Is there a formula to make a hit? It's just like in movies. People think there's a formula, but there isn't. You can't predict what yes, will become a hit. Yes, there is a formula in music. Tell us, what is it? It varies from, literally can vary from year to year what it is. And usually the formula, there are structural formulas that you have a verse, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus. That's a structure. And that's been a formula for many years. So that's pretty well understood in the industry. But do you need a hook? Do you need like... Yeah, hooks are still needed. I mean, if you listen to any rap song or you listen to uh, alternative rock or young kind of rock, there's some, some repetitive either sound or lyric that everybody just sticks in their head. And we had that with I Love You because we had I Love You and the little guitar thing. It does stick. That's your yeah, hook. The, the little right. da 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 yeah, da yeah, yeah, yeah. da 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 I've heard it a million times. And what you hear that, I think the best hooks are when they come right in the beginning and it, within a second you know what the song is. Okay. Jeremy, here's what I'd like to do. Can we take a minute and show that first clip from, the, uh, fr from uh, Dick Clark to show the band with the original... Yeah, I love you. Just give him a minute. He's gonna gonna plug it in, and uh, we'll come back in a second. Once again on bandstand, people. American Bandstand, they're playing your song, big-time stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dick Clark was big. Huge. We, we were so, I watched Dick Clark every day when I came home for four or five years. Right. As so, a kid, I watched Dick Clark, oh, and everybody he, was, I mean, it was big stuff. It seems almost hokey in this day and age, but that's what the kids wanted to watch, right? And you were there. Yeah, then it became Soul Train. And, yeah, that's right. 
Right, so the music was always And then it became evolving. MTV. I mean, to, it just... To it, me, that's what was great about the Beatles. The Beatles' music evolved, okay? When you talk about, you know, the Sgt. Pepper album, changing everything. Mm -hmm. Talk about how important for you as a songwriter, composer, to see music evolve. It doesn't stay in the same genre for five generations. It... It goes through decade periods is the way I look at it. And the 60s to me was the most experimentation, I think. Even rap, if you think about it, it was talking blues. Talking blues was the original. Do you like rap? Some of it, yes. Do you like rap? If it's done tastefully. I, ha I had some uh, opera students on my show here probably about 10 years ago. I mean, they're classical musicians who come to the Aspen Music Festival, incredibly talented. They play the viola and they sing opera. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you like rap? Oh, we love rap. It's yeah. not, they said it's not that easy to do. No, no. The, the, today it's very sophisticated compared to when they first started. Right. It was music of the street. It was music for everyone. And I think from that point of view, there was an honesty. There's still an honesty depending on who the artist is. It's so commercialized, though, now, that it, it's a lot of it I, I have no interest in because of that. Yeah, yeah. If it's yeah. great quality, I've heard some great quality stuff, though, just but recently. But there's a lot of talented people. Sometimes when I'm riding on my bicycle, I'll put some of it in my playlist, uh, and some of it's damn good, you know? All right, so you're in a number one song. You're an American bandstand. Why, before we get to people and why your group dissolved, mm -hmm. wh why did the Beatles break? Why did these? Why Simon and Garfunkel? People with so much success, why did they break up, Jeff? I used to think it was Yoko Ono. Well, I always blamed it on Yoko. I always blamed it on. Yoko. I see her in New York walking around and all I, the time. Damn, she just was in it for you know the stardom of being John Lennon's wife. Yeah, I don't think it was her so much as the Beatles had already performed. Literally 24-7 for three or four years before they even became successful. And then they became successful and got to do almost every style and music that they wanted. They wanted to grow, and they could no longer grow together. So I think they were really getting on their nerves because now the demand was make another record, make another record. They wanted to... There's too much money involved. It, it, they were a phenomena, and they couldn't go anywhere. They wanted their own lives. And I think that's why, the, that's my opinion why they broke up. They wanted their own lives. They wanted to go off, take a break. They needed a break desperately because they'd been on it. There are no breaks for like seven or eight years. Yeah, the stress is a tremendous, Robbie, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. yeah but, and, and, and did you, you tour it, when you were in People? Did you? One, yeah. One tour. It, this band, the original band, the I Love You band, did one tour, a big summer tour. We opened for The Who. And it was a great tour. Uh, and then we went on our own individual ways. I went on and toured for another nine years. Yeah, you were, uh, I, That's all I did you, for nine years. You toured years. with Rick Springfield, right? Well, I toured with, no, I, I continued people, and then people morphed into Rocking Horse, which was an, more of an R&B band. And then I pl played with Rick for two and a half years. I played right. bass with Rick. But altogether, I toured for nine years, solid. About 250 days a year for nine years. Wow, it's a tough life, right? It's yeah, okay when it, you're young. I well, wouldn't want to do young, it now. I, I, did, I did touring, a little bit of touring in the 70s. Then in the late 80s, I had a group called Celestial Navigations, and we toured because we actually had an album out 
that charted. And I worked with an actor named Jeffrey Lewis, Juliet Lewis's father, who you'd know him if you saw him. Yeah. He worked with Clint Eastwood on a lot of those movies, buddy movies, like Every Which Way But Loose. He yeah. was the buddy, you know, the funny okay. buddy. Yeah. But he's a great storyteller, so I was, we were touring and doing storytelling. It's still pressure. So now let's talk about why people broke up, because that's an important part of your experience, not only as band members, as human beings, as brothers. So who wants to take the lead on that? <laughs> in 1968, we got introduced to, a, I don't know what to call an it, organization. an organization called Scientology which, Scientology, which everybody's probably familiar with now. It's a religion. It's, it's it's no. it's more of a cult than a religion. It's a cult. Yeah. Well, Tom a, Cruise is a prominent, the most prominent yes. member of their group. Correct. That's right. fair, right? Yeah. yeah oh, that's, no, that's he's, correct. He's the right. most notable. Before we get into Scientology itself, why do you think, Jeff, that people are drawn to this need for religion? Clearly. The established religions, religions have been around for thousands of years. Yeah. Okay, there have been newer religions. Mormonism came up in the 1800s, tremendous following. Scientology has its own little cult following. Mm -hmm. Not everybody needs that. I mean, I, like I consider myself, I'm Jewish like you, but I'm mm -hmm. a secular humanist. I'm happy being good to people and enjoying life. Why do people crave religion? For me, I needed family because- That was your family. I didn't, in my, the way my parents related to me, and I'm not talking about Robbie, it was different, I felt like I was some kind of an alien. They didn't know what to do with me. So you were different just, from what they expected. I don't know what they expected. I just felt they, they felt that they needed to have kids. I don't, they weren't prepared for it, in my opinion. And it was, I was like an alien. What do you do with my dad? I, my dad never you know, did sports with me, he was busy, he never did much at all. So I was on my own almost all you the time. You craved a different experience. So the, what about you, Robbie? What, what I, attracted you to Scientology? I, I think I was looking for answers, you know, being introduced to psychedelics at a young age, and, and Jeff uh, covered it a little bit earlier, there weren't a lot of people doing psychedelic drugs no, in the no, early no. '60s. There was we just were. A, we, we were because we were in this music scene. You music. did acid in the music That's scene. early because Real musicians early. were all the ones turning did on. Did that change you? you yeah, think? it did. I mean, when we did acid, it wasn't for fun. We did acid per exactly. Timothy Leary's book, his first book, The Psychedelic uh, book Experience. Yeah, and turn and, and, on, and, tune in, drop yeah, out. Yeah, and it wasn't right? it, it wasn't about having fun. It was you had a guide. You, you, you dropped acid, and it was a spiritual Did experience. Did you have a spiritual yeah. experience with acid? The first time, no. I did. I you did. did. Definitely did. But I knew that's what I was looking for. And then after the drugs, this thing came, came along, Scientology made all these promises. We were tired of drugs, these promises. We You were, had done that. And yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And everybody, everybody else was starting to do it when we stopped. It. We were like, oh, yeah, what's the big deal? Yeah. Okay, so explain Scientology. It's what they promise is immortality. And that's the simplicity of it. We're spiritual beings. We live life after life. And what they promise is that we will regain our ability to remember. And when we go on, 
we won't have amnesia. We'll be able to go You'll on. You'll remember your past lives? You, Is that you the do concept? remember your past lives, and you will go on and be able to remember this life. So when I die and I come back as some, someone else, I'll remember that I was Jeff Levin. I won't be Jeff Levin, and I'll understand that, but I'll remember that I was. But is there something to Scientology that uh, I have a very rudimentary knowledge of these uh, newer religions, but it's basically there's some theory that aliens came to Earth, or and I'm not denigrating it. I'm just so, so here's to so here so you can well so. Yeah. We got in in 1968, okay? 68. That was 60, pretty early. That was pretty early for Scientology. Hubbard, Hubbard was, was the guy, right? Hubbard, Hubbard was, in my opinion, one of the great con mans of the last couple of centuries. This guy was a science fiction writer, and he had a lot of charisma when he spoke. And he did. And he was a pathological liar. He was a criminal. He was a con. He was, but you didn't see it then. No, no, no. Of course we didn't see it, but neither did millions of Germans in 1936. Exactly. They didn't see Hitler as that. They saw no. him as a savior. So people people want certain things, and they're willing to forgive certain things that they see. It's called cognitive dissonance. dissonance, and and that's rampant in Scientology. Hubbard was a great con man, and he pulled off a great con. I mean, he said before he started Scientology, he said, look, if you really want to get rich, start a religion. That's a and quote. That's, and that's a quote, that, and that's what he did. That's an interesting way of looking. You know, uh, George Carlin, who was born Roman Catholic, was very irreverent about oh, religion. Oh, yeah, I love He Carlin. said, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient but he always needs money. He said, what can he do? He's the most powerful man in the world, but he can't handle his money. Okay. So did Scientology ask their people to contribute money? Well, here's the way it started for us. And basically, it gives you a scientific, quick approach to answers. Simple answers like, how do I communicate with you? And the first course that we did was very inexpensive. And we both got, I got a lot out of it at the time. You were getting something out of it. Yes, in the beginning, no, yeah, it, it was like, wow, I'm feeling <laughs> fulfilled somehow. Well, we, were, we were also kids. Well, right. I, was, I was 23, and they were like 1920. Who recruited you? How did they get you? Well, I had been exposed to it in 1964 through a mentor, musician friend, and he told me two things that I really believed. They made complete sense to me. One was that I was a spiritual being and immortal. And two, that I had powers that I didn't even know about that they talked about. And this about. all is synchronous with the religion. This was 1964 and he gave me a little book and he gave me a little drill that I that I made sense to me on when you had an injury, how to how to deal with the injury. Your parents must have been horrified. No, they didn't know about it. They oh, they didn't about know anything none, about it. Not until 68. They didn't know anything. And how did they react when they found out that these like two nice Jewish kids from San Jose were becoming Scientologists? They, they were they were against it. Um, were they confused by it? Would that be like, why do you? There wasn't this? there wasn't a lot of there There's wasn't no a lot reference. of press anti anti Scientology press at that time, so they did they weren't exposed to the negativities of Scientology. But 
they well, it, it just it me. just struck them as pretty odd but I was 18 actually and I needed parental approval at that time oh, to right. actually proceed with the Scientology processing or their therapy and uh, my parents at first weren't going to give the approval and I convinced them to give it and and they did but they you know he they had a better relationship with them than I yeah, I had a different relationship with my parents and well, Jeff did I, I, I qualified as better but yeah a different relationship <laughs> well okay well part of when were when, your parents proud of you as were they proud that you were successful musicians? What, what was know. their perspective, do you think? Uh, do you ever look back and think, what, they, what did our parents think of us? Do you ever they, think? they were happy when we had some success. Um, uh, you know, I went on after the um, music industry and started a clothing company as a clothing manufacturer. And um, my, our mom died, unfortunately, of cancer when she was only 62 years old. But uh, she was an accountant. A very Factoring, accomplished accountant, yeah, and she, and my and they, she was, they were ecstatic with what I was doing. My yeah. mom was going to quit the company that she was managing That's for right, 17 years and come and be the controller at my company, and then wow. she got cancer at the exact same time. But they couldn't figure Jeff out. He was well. Like on they kind of like they what, were proud of his accomplishments in music. because well, you're were. a very accomplished uh, composer and song songwriter. I and, mean, and, and yeah, and producer. I mean, music producer and. Um, at the time, though, I was not doing that. I was still performing with other people, uh, other artists, uh, music artists. Uh, one of them was Larry McNeely, who was a banjo player on Glen Campbell. He was really well known. And then I got hooked up with an artist named Jimmy Spheris, who was on CBS Records. And through that, I met this young actress, Diana Canova who then went on to be on Soap, the TV show Soap, which was huge in the, six, in the 70s. So my parents were happy that I had a really nice wife and who was successful. I was moderately successful. So what, was, what broke up the band then? How did Scientology break up the band? We've, we've, basically, we became zealots. In, it's like you, zealots. That's you what like happens. Take, you mm -hmm. take you know those little packages of vitamin C. Yeah. Well, you could take the same little package and put zealot in it, pour it in there. We drank it, and within two. You drank the Kool Aid. Yep. Within two weeks, I was um, now could analyze other people. I could I could take look at you and tell you what kind of person you are whether you're good, whether you're not good. All because you drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And what happened is then we targeted one of the lead singers. who was He was very odd. In the band. In the band. He, he, was, not a, he was not a social personality. And you get all these new words. The whole, whole language changes. You get your own language. But were you proselytizing? Did you want uh, him oh, to come? You, yes. We did. Oh, you yeah. Did. yeah he did, and he wasn't interested. He, wasn't, he so, was Christian. How long did you take to, how long were you in the, in the cult? I was active in the cult from 68 till 72. Okay, so that's four years. Yeah, not nothing. and I was extremely active. I mean, I was really, really active. Yeah, we I, both were. But you were in it a long time. I was 68, I was, a, no, I was starting to believe in 64 because he'd. he'd and then give, when did it end for you? Recently. Okay, so you have been under. I was you under know. the radar, and I was whatever. I, I officially 
because of an issue with my son who's now active in it, I officially came out to them in just a month ago. That you were, now how did you, it, the fact that you dropped out of Scientology, but you were in it for so many decades, yes. he, he drove a wedge between you. No, it didn't drive a wedge between you. Scientology, when somebody is antagonistic towards Scientology, which I was when I left, I was very antagonistic. I did, he was I did an interview with their nemesis newspaper. Well, that's I true. mean, I was, I was really antagonistic. Okay, so you had had it with them. Oh, I, w I knew but the game. he didn't I knew tell the game. me necessarily right okay. away. Were you angry that he had turned on the... It was, uh, we were close at that point. We had gone through, you know, when the band, I left the band in... 69. 69, and we were at odds. But then... We got close around 72. Got closer, yeah, and, and then when you left... When I, I didn't really leave until the early 80s. I just wasn't involved. He just okay. was, but and, he was supportive of other people. And yeah, you know, but, but then I, I finally figured it out. Basically what happened in 72, I went away, started playing with my band, and then I started my clothing company. So between 72 and 80, I had no involvement in Scientology. And what was your relationship like? Good. It was excellent. It was really good. It was good. excellent. I would go but, out and but, play with But then band. you had a falling out. At well, one what point. happened? Well, I'll give it to you. What happened was in, in 1980, I went back after eight years of success with my clothing business and, and, I was and dealing happy. with a lot of, you know, dealing with a lot of huge businesses, in, you know, retailers and things like that. And so I was a little more sophisticated in my uh, experience, and I went back to do some more Scientology, and it looked totally different to me. It right. was like, this is a joke. Yeah, you can't be, be serious. You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. This isn't really for but real. You, you hit on so, so anyway, so I got out, and I was quiet for a few years, and then I made a lot of noise. Now, once I made a lot of noise, they after I left, they expelled me, you know, like, I'm gone. Right, well, you're, you're expelled. <laughs> well, no, so you're they shunned. expelled me. And when they expel you... You can't quit. You're yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. once they expel no, you, you, all other Scientologists are forbidden to talk to you. Including your own brother. Yeah. Including your own brother. So and we, you didn't talk to him. For 28 years. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Jeff, well, did you fall on your head as a baby? Seriously. Well, <laughs> understand that the process of be, being programmed is slow. Yes. I, I always I, talk about it as I jumped in. Programmed is the right word, I Jeff. jumped into it really quickly. Yeah. At the same time, mostly it's like the frog in the pot. It starts really, you know, right. putting a little, a little money bit, in. Right. It, it feels comfortable. It's warm. You have a little bit of, of, of good feelings and good maybe epiphanies from it. You get the next thing, a little more money, and then it goes on. So I was fully in it, and I was really disappointed. Because in Robbie. We were, but actually, Robbie saw the light before you did, well, we to were, use a we metaphor. Well, we were close. He could see what I couldn't see mm -hmm. and understand that all this information that I didn't get until much later was all there. They just kept it. The us. cognitive dissonance is so strong, and the brainwashing yes. becomes so strong in Scientology that people can't see the forest through the trees. But you they wonder get... if, uh, what I wonder about is I sort of have my own ideas about things. I don't think I could be programmed for that, maybe you for wouldn't. something else. But I, if someone told me, I'd tell them, you know, piss off. It's right. like, 
I don't it buy was, the premise, as my mother would say. Right. For me, though, I was a spiritual. When I was teeny, I was, you you were susceptible to it because that's levels. what you wanted. Jeff. On two levels, one, I needed I needed that feeling of belonging that I never felt. Yes. Secondarily, I was very spiritual from a tiny little kid, and it appealed to me. And this was my eternity. This was my immort immortality. Just as a, in Catholicism, it's different. But you still feel that you're going to go to heaven. Yes. For us, it's we're going to live on with memory. With memory. But the interesting thing to me is, like, I don't have any need to feel like I'm going to live on. I don't. Well, but, uh, but this some was, people need it. This was for me, it yeah. was personally. And I couldn't give that up because, and I saw so many cases where it appeared to be very real. They, it, it, and I can, and I did get positive things from it. I, I'm not going to deny that yes, at all. Yes, of course. Of every religion, every religion has a lot of good things, or it wouldn't have lasted for thousands of years. I mean, right. think about it. But like it's Tom the, Cruise, what caused him to stay in it so long? He got he it, it helped him with his uh, ADHA or what is it? ADHD. AD, yeah. ADHD. He really it really changed him in that respect. And then he kept moving, and there were better. And did things. he try to get Katie Holmes to become a Scientologist? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, she grew up in Toledo, so we, my kids know right. her. But uh, I'd rather t the one thing we never fully answered is when we is kicking out. The member of the group killed our group, uh -huh. and our zealousness and our inability to see the you know you couldn't take people for who they were. You no, wanted all, to, but we yeah. were, we would have continued if we were going to go into TM transcendental meditation, and instead we went into Scientology. I embraced it fully, and then so many years of your life, and well, I'm bringing it bringing the group back. And recording again to me was not to do a commercial success. It was to heal and to create a memory that's in the present that's positive. To come full circle in this story. You know what's interesting to me? So getting to current day people life here, uh, Jeff and Robbie and members of the band of the original, the original band, band are, are getting together now. Well, we just recorded. like you know when. Uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd had a cop car and sunglasses and they were going to the Penguin to get the band back together. Right. You guys have gotten the band back together after 50 years, mm -hmm. okay, and you've re you're just releasing a new song. Talk about it. We, I talked to one of the members of the group, and, and I'll be real brief on that, and he was embarrassed to even admit that he'd had a hit record, if you can believe that. Because he felt we were so close, we had it, and we blew it. Now, I felt horrible that I had been one of the decision makers that had kicked this member out of the group because there was no reason for it. In real life, there was no reason that we should have kicked him out. We it were, was your own insecurities It was or our per new perception, all of a sudden, that he was, he was dangerous. He was somebody we couldn't work with. And we lost him. We lost our manager, who had uh, Michael Hunter, Captain Mikey from San Jose, who was a program director at a KLIV. And so we lost him. And to me, we lost the group. And when we talk about doing a tour with The Who, it was a nightmare for me because we couldn't perform. We'd worked for three years nonstop. We had a great group. And then we had one of our lead singers not there.
Yeah, and everything it, was off. It was two clicks off. It worked, but it wasn't. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the so, same. So okay. So now the new song. Talk about the new oh, song because we're going to show a clip of it in a second. Yeah, it, it, we we were watching a '60s show on PBS. My my girlfriend and I, and at the same time we had this epiphany. Eve of Destruction comes on, and we're looking at the lyrics, scrolling up, right? And this whole world, it is exploding. I remember it. Yeah. And I can't went, sing it, but. No, you can. You sound good. Um, and the lyrics were like it was written five minutes ago. I said, this is, that's the song we have to do. This, and, and the lyrics are irrelevant to what happened to us, you know, with our band. And did you call the members of the band? Did you know yes. where everybody was? Oh, well, I was in touch with everybody. I was in touch. I was helping the, the, one of the lead singers, Gene, to set up his studio because I felt I needed to make amends to the group because because your it was my whatever decision. Whatever you did and had broken Rob, up the band. Well, both Robbie and I decided no more Larry, right? Yeah, Robbie, you 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 never finished college, right? No. Did you go to college at all? Yeah, I, 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 I finished my first year at San Jose State, and then our record hit number one. And so so I was like, okay, go back to school or go on the road. <laughs> Do you regret that? Do you regret that? Not you didn't at finish all. College? Not what at about all. you? No, I was a psychology major. At it, San Jose State? At San Jose also? State. And, but I was doing music at the same time. I was teaching like 50 students a week guitar, and I, my passion was music. And I did want to help people. That was the other thing. When I got into Scientology, they said, you can help millions of people. Yeah. And, and so now I had music and some kind of way of helping people. So the song that you decided to record, there's the original members of the band 50, 50 years later. Yeah. I mean, we're talking Except Larry, light years. Yeah, Larry died. The so, one that got kicked out, he died in 2008. He never recovered after you kicked him no, out. No, he did. Well, he, we don't know what would have happened if he'd stayed in, but he became the godfather of Christian rock. Wow. Really famous. He, he modernized Christ, Christian rock music. His lyrics were modern. His so he was a talented musician. Very, and, he and, was, and there's a, there's a little side story, which is very interesting. In 2007, we were invited to be inducted into the San Jose Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is now the Bay Area Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So the, so the original band, with the guy we kicked out, we all performed in Together. 2007. In October of 2007, we all performed and at this concert for San Jose Rocks, which is the, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then Larry died five or six months later. He was very sick at the yeah, concert. He was, yeah. very, he, was, he was very sick. But it was interesting that we had all the original members had all gotten together and performed. Everyone. Yeah, everyone. So, so let's do this. Uh, Jeremy, let's see if we can uh, dial up the uh, new recording 50 years after. Yeah, we, we've done a music we're, video. We're, we're going to do a little music video uh, showing uh, the eve of uh, destruction. Uh, let's see if we can run that, Jeremy. Kill. 
Jerry Bovino. We're back with Jeff Levin and Robbie Levin from the group People had a hit 50 years ago and are just re-recorded now a new song, The Eve of Destruction. Mm -hmm. And Robbie correctly uh, noted that it's never been more timely considering what's going on in North Korea. Are you worried about what's going on in North Korea? I think we're all a little bit worried about what's we're going all on. Bit you know, we were we were worried. Uh, we were worried in the '60s. We were worried in uh, 1963 with um, oh. Bay of Pigs and um, oh, and, we, and, and duck we, and cover. Remember, yeah, that? Oh, and, 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 and I think that would have saved us. Yeah, I think we. I think yeah. we're worried again. I I don't look at it the same anymore because a I'm older and we've been through it. But there aren't that many of us that were cognizant during the Bay of Pigs. I mean, we were teenagers at that time, so it meant something to us, but a lot of people around now don't see it. Uh, nobody seems to have a, a good answer for it right now, so how it unfolds, we, we don't know. What, what do you guys think, as you look at the history of rock and roll, you were in the early days, I mean, it's still going to this day in a sure. different form. Who was the greatest band in, that you know, greatest rock band, what would you say? Well, for me, I mean, other people might disagree. The Beatles had the biggest influence on me. They did; they were so experimental. They were such great vocalists and such great songwriters. I was just a, a Beatle album would come out, and it was a huge event. Beatle album coming was, out. Remember when Sgt. Pepper came out oh, in, yeah. in, in 1967? I remember it. It was like, first of all, everybody bought that album. Okay, everybody. Um, so. What do you think, Robbie? Do you want you well? The, the the Beatles are incomparable. They stand in, in a league of their own, so you can't compare anybody else to them. But as far as my favorite rock band, aside from the Beatles, uh, I think it's Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, and on the R and B side, because I'm a real R and B guy, it's Tower Power. Okay, but you know what's interesting to me is. Um, I always loved the Beatles more than the Stones, but I've loved the Stones as I've grown older. I've learned to appreciate great rock band. Yeah, oh, how great they rock have band. gone through. They started, what is it, their fifth or sixth decade performing. And if you watch Mick Jagger up oh, there on he's stage, ridiculous. he's got more energy than the Energizer Bunny. How does he do that? Well, <laughs> I can, I'm, I'm, I'm going on 72 next week. He must be about 76, maybe? Yeah, he's definitely... 77, he's up there. And I was going to say, as far as my best favorite rock band, it would be the Stones. When you see them live, you can't sit down. They're, they're so infectious. But five decades later... Music, I think when you really do what you want to do, and Jagger's a very intelligent person. Yeah, he went he's, to the London School of Economics, I mean, he's for God's sake. brilliant, but he's a brilliant songwriter, great performer. I think he loves what he does. When you love what you do, it keeps you young. That, I think that you just hit on the key. These guys could not do that with all the... They've had more drugs go through their body than oh. Bristol Myers and Squibb, yeah. okay? And they're still up there doing that. They have to love it. Yeah, and Keith Richards has been dead for 20 years. He's still playing. <laughs> <laughs> and who's the one? Was it Brian Wilson? Uh, well, no, not Brian Wilson. Who was the one that's the sexual gorilla? Uh, what was his name? Uh, one of the Stones. Uh, 
he just like had more girls than the entire world put together. It might have been Keith Richards. It might, Keith it must Richards. have been Keith Richards. Keith yeah. Richards. Yeah. I love his guitar playing. Yeah. If I could play like. Well, he's inspired by all those women. Well, he's so simple. He's the, to me the the epitome of rock and roll. Simply, I watched them play opposite Red Hot Chili Peppers yeah. when they were really hot. They struggled. They sounded like a little teeny garage band compared to the Stones. And they're a great band. <laughs> but when amazing. the Stones got yeah, up, oh, amazing. my God. And the greatest song of all time, do you have one rock song, Robbie, that you love more than any oh other? Oh, my God. Uh, For me, Sympathy of the Devil. In the That's uh, Stones. Mm -hmm. Sympathy of the Devil. Yeah, or, what is it, Sympathy with the Devil? or? But, uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, Wait, that, do you have a favorite? They, and one of these, you know, they have all these websites where they rate the 500 greatest rock songs of all time. And on this one that I looked at before the I, show. I'd say Yesterday might be my favorite yesterday, rock song yeah. of all time. As far as the ballad goes, the first time I heard that, it was like time stopped. Yeah. But the one that, that they rated number one on this, uh, 500, it's like being at a beauty contest, you know. Yeah, you have yeah, 100 yeah. girls, they're all beautiful. How do you pick the best? Right. But they picked A Day in the Life, the Beatles. Great song. The, the story, great song. Got to right? tell you a story. Now on you that. realize that's a great song. No, no, right? no, no. We we were a copy band, and that's how we built our, our our careers. First copying, and then doing original. And our our manager was a DJ. He would get the records before anybody else. So we were competing with other bands in San Jose to be the hottest band. You know, copy band. He gave us the record. A day and a half or a day? We got the whole album. We, we, got, we got the whole album. We went in and we woodshed for three days solid. During six Learning a day in the no, life? No, six, six tunes. Six tunes. Six tunes off of the album before it was released. Wow. So we did a concert that... And that was legal to do that. Well, nobody, nobody said well, anything. Yeah. Anyway, we did a big concert at one of the big halls. We played at the Continental. The Continental. Big hall for rock bands. And... People could not believe it. They had just heard the songs on the radio. And we were and playing we were two playing hours later. <laughs> two hours later. That was impressive. Well, you guys, are, you have a compelling story. Grew up as close brothers, broke apart through religion, had a band that had a number one hit. Uh, well, we were number you number one in every locale. We were number twelve, I think, at the top of the. Not billboard. chopped liver. No. And uh, you uh, are back now, fifty years later. You have a new, a new uh, Eve of Destruction recording, and uh, you're back together as brothers, which I think is the most important thing, uh, lesson from this. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Jeff Levin, very very well accomplished. Uh, songwriter and composer, and my man love, Robbie, Robbie <laughs> Levin, who's a great guy. If you see him in town or if you see Julie from Leaf People, please say hello. We will see you next week.